the Province Sports Podcast. Welcome to the White Tail Podcast. I'm Paul Chapman, joined by Canuck beat writer Patrick Johnson. Reminder, as always, please subscribe to us through Apple iTunes. Give us a rating if you'd like. We endeavor to bring you the best Canuck news from the beat all week. We'll have uh, Ben Kuzma and Ed Willis involved. Patrick, Ben has headed off to St. Louis with this team. That's after. Left us. Yeah, he has. And uh, what a start for this uh, for this franchise. Now, we do do some video work here as well. Just like your thoughts for our pod listeners on... What does this start mean for the Canucks? Because we have seen good starts from this team the last several seasons, and we know where they've ended up, which is not right. in the playoffs. The thing I found myself comparing it to was, remember the year where, I think it was a Willie, Willie's second year, and the Canucks started off, and they were 3-0, and and they led for eight minutes total or something like that. It was just, it was this total mirage of a start, and we all knew it was a mirage. And this year, it doesn't, it's not. It's this. They've been in essentially every game. I mean, the Calgary game may be a bit of an exception, but they've been in every game. Unlucky, perhaps, in Edmonton. You know, all three home wins, yes, there's a shootout win in there, uh, but they certainly had plenty of chances to win that game in regulation. So, you know, I don't feel like that was a fluky win. So, you know, three legitimate wins at home. And, you know, they're going to go off and play some tough teams, obviously playing St. Louis, uh, playing the playing the Devils, who we think are real, but had a are having a terrible start. Awful start, yeah. The Rangers, who you know we know is a you know an up and coming team, and then seeing Detroit again next week in Detroit, never an easy place to play, but that Detroit team's not very good. They've set themselves up well. It's going to be a battle in the long run to make the playoffs. They still need to, you know, prove that they're. I mean, what last year, you know, eighty three point team, which was also powered by a bunch of shootout wins. Uh, you know, they need to be a dozen points better than that to make the playoffs this year. So there's still a long way to go, but we'll see. I mean, it's so far so good. Yeah, but if you do the mental math on this team, and honestly, if you if this was to bear itself out, we would all be millionaires through betting on sports. Right. But when you look at Pedersen, who's off to a decent start again, you figure that he won't hit the wall the way he has in right. years past. Besser's looked decent. Yeah. Miller's been great. Quinn Hughes hasn't looked out of place. And then you look at guys like Myers, mm-hmm. uh, you know, some of the other free agents, Jordy Ben. Yep. Furland, of course, is the one question, but it all trends to this being a deeper, more competitive team, does it not? Like, I know anything can happen. Yeah. But this team, to me, when you look at how they've started, I think they're going to be in, in the mix. I would not be surprised at this point, and I know it's early to say yeah. this is a playoff team. I, I, I don't think you're wrong in saying that. I think it's certainly, you know, if you compare it with last year's team, it's a better constructed team. There's, there is, you know, the, the top two lines are a lot better than they were last year, and, and yeah, the, and the defense core they've they've turned over half the defense core and, and essentially improved in every position. That, you know, Myers is a an improvement. It bears to repeat they they replaced Michael Delzato, Derek Pouliot, Ben Hutton, right? Three guys that played a lot of minutes. Alex Biega, good guy. Alex Biega's out. You know, depth player. But they've replaced them with Tyler Myers, Quinn Hughes, Jordy Ben. And all three of those guys, man-to-man, is better than the three guys. I mean, maybe Ben Hutton, you could say, was was overmatched and was a fine defensive depth guy. But, but you know, Delzato and Pouillot were clearly not up to snuff, and they got a lot of minutes last year. And they're not here. I mean, it's a, that, that alone is an addition by subtraction. And then you add in Quinn Hughes, who, you know, it's still early stages, but... 
you know, is just an absolutely electric player and is going to be like something, if he plays out the way we think he's going to, is going to be a kind of player that, you know, we've never seen here before. You know, and then Myers has been a solid start to the season. I mean, you know, there's going to be bumps. The first goal against um, against Detroit, not necessarily his fault, but, you know, him and Edler, you know, that's – that. They, nobody on that line played very well, and there's been two hiccups, and that's going to happen. They're not perfect hockey players, but certainly it's been a very good start from the back end, and that, that again, is going to be a big part of the push that they hope to have by the end of the season. It's funny you mention Edler. I think he's been – you know, tagged as the number one defenseman uh, for so many years because of the paucity of talent on the Canucks yeah. blue line. He's never, ever been a number one defenseman. But it doesn't matter as much when other guys are picking up the slack, does it? And I know you wrote about this today. Six goals from the blue line already, and this has been a huge topic of conversation the last couple of years. They had 28 goals la- all of last season. Yeah, 27. So, tw- so you're already, you know, around 25% of that. And I think yeah. you wrote at this point, a couple of years ago, or not at this point, two, two years ago, they only had 21 goals all season from the yep. Blue Lines. You're already 35% of the way there with six goals. Like, this is kind of an unwritten, I don't want to say unwritten story, but it's a great story from the Canucks. And we focus on guys like Pedersen. But it's it's the production of the Blue Line that's been a large factor in making this team a, a playoff contender. It's, a, it's funny because, you know, the numbers were so low. They're, you know, the bar was easy to clear. And so... The fact that they are at least going to be, you know, let's say league average at the end of it all, that's, that is a big important step. I mean, that is what gets you close to the playoffs and that's the goal. I, I, we think, it's funny, we think Edler's never been number one defenseman. Well, it was also because the Canucks defense core, if you go back, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years was so deep. And that again is a reminder of what a, a top contending team's lineup looks like and that you, you have a, you know, you'd love to have that number one defenseman, that guy that controls the play over and above every other uh, alternative on that blue line. But if you're not going to have that standout elite, elite, elite guy, you know, when you look at a lineup like, say, the 2011 group, when you had Christian Erhoff, you had Dan Hughes, and you had Kevin Bieksa, you know, you had Sammy Sallow, you had... Uh, Alex Edler. I mean, that's an incredible list of guys that are like, okay, if they're number twos, that's a pretty good list of number twos. Now, is Quinn Hughes in the long run going to be a number one? He could be, just because he's so he's such an incredible skater, and we saw it again last night. Like, there's there's moments where he can move the puck up the ice or in the offensive zone, and he just forces teams to have to react in ways that there's there are very few other Canucks. Pedersen being one, maybe Bo Horvat. In in ways that, you know that that do change, that change the game in your favor. And uh, you know as as obviously the season progresses, and I wrote about this last week. You know the idea that early in the year there's not a lot of video to review. A guy like Quinn Hughes has now played ten NHL games. You know, and he's learning the game himself and adapting and adjusting as teams start to understand him a little bit better. They can prepare, but at the same time, he is an elite skater, and and you know it is one of those ones. It's like perhaps like Connor McDavid, you're only trying to contain. You can't stop, but you can contain maybe. It's unfair to hang tags on people, good or bad, after such a small handful of games. And I saw people getting upset at a sports radio poll yesterday right. about uh, Michael Furland. Right. But what is going on with Furland? It's, it's a tough question. I mean, there were glimpses, I thought, on on Tuesday night against the Wings. There were glimpses of, of the player he want, he's supposed to be. You know, the guy that's strong on the forecheck, 
makes, you know, effective plays on the puck, but it's like he isn't getting there. He still is almost like he's hasn't quite found his motor, if you will. I think we mostly kind of shied away from it because it's tough to say. You know, it's you want to give the guy, you know, benefit of the doubt, first of all, because he had that illness and, you know, was out uh, for an important section of training camp. But that that is now a month ago. So, you know, some of it's system. He's played, you know, he's played in, a, in different, you know, three years, three different systems. He was in Calgary and, then, of course, Carolina last year. And now this year he's in Vancouver and he's learning a new setup and tendencies of players. It's, I think it remains to be determined what the issue is because he certainly hasn't looked effective. He hasn't had many, you know, scoring opportunities and he's got scored in the past. And you're just not quite seeing him on the wall the way that he was presented as being that kind of player. Um, it's one of those ones almost like it's, you know, I, I think I'm going to have to go back and watch a little bit more of his play, say, from last year, especially early on because he had such a strong start. You know, last year's narrative was important to understand. He had a great start with the Hurricanes but did fall off, you know, halfway through the year. And when the Hur- Hurricanes added Nino Niederreiter, they were quick to replace Furland on the first line with Niederreiter, and that was turned out to be a great pickup for them. So there's a few things to get into the same time you know he still produces and he's been a productive player and done lots of things well so it's hard to imagine him not finding his way back to that player it's funny what we you know it's a sports cliche but one that's very true winning masks a lot of things yeah. and, and when the team's winning and doing well you're not going and splitting hairs yeah. but uh Jake Vertanen it was a big question mark tons of conversation about him in training camp preseason um, pretty anonymous start to the season for me. How have you viewed how he's started the season and what can people expect? Yeah, I mean, he's not playing a ton, right? He's been playing, you know, before Tyler Mott came back, he was on the fourth line. Now he's kind of on the third line playing with Sutter and, and was with Furlan last night. Um, it, it, it takes a, Jake's funny, you know, he, he was quite happy after the game to talk, you know, when things aren't going his way, it's not, it's not his instinct. And maybe that's fair enough. I mean, most, most athletes know when things aren't going well and they have enough time on their own to sort of consider what they need to do better. Uh, but after Tuesday's game, you know, he lingered a bit. He wasn't looking necessarily, hey, I hope people come talk to me. But he, there he was, and I, I went over and I I said to him, I, you know, he had set up Troy Stetcher's goal and, uh, you know, obviously a couple of fan favorites teaming up on a goal is always going to be a, a nice talking point. So I went and talked to him about it. I just said, you know, talk me through the rush. How did that all play out? And yeah, he was happy to talk about it and 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 sort of go over the sort of sequence. He's a good he's a good person to talk to about stuff like that when things do happen in, in that kind of scenario. And you know, sort of tells you literally what he's trying to do and what he's thinking of and what he's looking at. And and then I sort of asked him, you know, how are you feeling? Obviously, we know you've been a bit of a talking point. You know, there's from the from day one and he, he said no i'm feeling better feeling in my groove i think i'm you know doing what i need to be doing and you know he's feeling good I, I think from the outside you're constantly reminded of by the flashes that he shows in a game you know there are moments where he is strong along the boards and he maybe tries to be aggressive on the forecheck at the same time you know his his playing style that had so much success in junior was you know he was bigger and stronger than his peers 
And he was able to sort of burst past defensemen in a way that you're just not going to be able to do in the NHL. And so that means he needs to be smarter in terms of earning scoring chances, being positioned for when the puck comes to him. You know, he set up, like I said, he set up Stetcher's goal. Uh, opening night at home, he set up the Brandon Sutter goal. You know, his his passing seems to be having effectiveness. Now it's about the cliche is having a stick on the ice, being ready for when the puck comes to him. Well, we all want to see those shotgun beard uh, <laughs> yeah, videos. You know, we're and, waiting for you know, them. <laughs> he, you know, him scoring 15 goals last year wasn't a, a fluke. Like, he, we know he can shoot. Uh, and so it's about him. Obviously, when you're playing on the third line, you're not getting a ton of ice time. But it is about him, yeah, being re- ready to pull the trigger. And I think, I think that is the element of his game that, you know, we have forever want to see more of. Better Jim Benning move, uh, Tanner Pearson for Erica Branson or TJ Miller for a conditional first round? JT contract? Miller. Uh, I mean, Miller's been so good. Yeah. Pearson, Pearson's been a, he's a handy player. Like he, he was a good player in LA. He had a tough season. Obviously, the Kings had a terrible start. He got traded to Pittsburgh, essentially was dealing with a groin injury for the first, I think, six weeks he was there. Wasn't really a thing that people know about. He told, you know, sort of mentioned it casually at the end of the season when I was talking to him. It, you know, he's a good good fit with Bo Horvat. They both are very sort of straight line players. I mean, obviously Horvat is a, we've seen what a great skater he's become. Uh, but Pearson and, Pearson and, and him and, you know, whoever's been on their wing, whether it's been Levo or, or Furlan, uh, have been so good at turning pucks over and just getting the puck to the net. Um, it's, it's interesting watching Pearson. Yeah. He's, a, he's been a useful player in, in, in all. Well, I kind of, I kind of chuckle because like we know Miller's off to this great start, yeah. but we know how much Canuck fans are, love their first round picks. Yes. And that's still a story to be written. I mean, Miller can be a great yeah. player, but, you know, we know – first-round pick, as we know, Betterson – Right. Betterson. Uh, Besser, Pedersen, Quinn, or yeah. Quinn Hughes really turn your, yeah. your franchise around. So, I mean, that story's still yet to be written. But Erica Branson was the fan's whipping boy. Right. And you've just spent, you know, a good chunk of this podcast talking about defensemen and needing a number one guy in the blue line. That's why they brought Branson in. Right. To flip a guy an asset like that and get a useful piece back, I mean, I think there are two trades really worth looking at the work, the yeah. work of Jim Benning there. And, and the bottom line is both of them have made the roster a lot better. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you're really looking to weigh trades, you still need to look at, you can't just look at Pearson for Goodbranson. You have to look at the price you paid to get Goodbranson, which was, you know, Jared McCann and, and some draft picks. And, you know, I, I think Jared McCann is, you know, obviously, not he's not a make or break player, but he's proven to be a very good player on a on on the Pittsburgh Penguins, who are a team that des- you know, I mean, obviously it sounds weird to say, but they desperately need good players because they've got Sidney Crosby and they've got Evgeny Malkin. But you know, when those guys are off the ice, the, you know, it, it is a bit like the Canucks story: who's on the ice when their stars aren't on the ice? And you know, a guy like McCann's have done well. Um, so it is a bit. I mean, getting Pearson back for a player that just didn't work here at all. You know, on his own is a good trade. Would you trade Pearson for McCann? Then that's a different question. Uh, but the Miller move, I mean, you're, you're totally right. I mean, he's a player that's made a huge difference. He clearly fits so well. I mean, when they picked him up, I looked at him and said, this is a player that fits perfectly actually with Pedersen and Besser. Although the plan at the, you know, we started hearing, oh, they're going to play him with Horvat. I was like, 
okay, but I think he fits better with that Pedersen Besser duo and sort of what they need, that guy that can be down low and and uh, you know, create space. Not necessarily in the, in the way that people imagine that, oh, look, he, you know, he's actually, you know, forcing his way through the defense and buffering them off and then creating space for himself. It's not just that. It's that he's a player that plays at a, a, at a pace that, you know, creates more opportunity for his line mates. And we've seen that. And of course, he's been an effective unit, or effective player on the power play. Um, you know, on the price, we're going to talk a lot about because the price was hefty. And, you know, this is a team that's done well drafting first-round picks, uh, using first-round picks. And, you know, could they have moved a lesser-round pick after draft day, you know, as as things got closer? Because Tampa had to make some moves. Everyone knew it. And, uh, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, if they if they find themselves winning two rounds in the playoffs and they've traded away a 23rd overall pick or something like that, you know, they're going to say, well, yeah, the price was worth it. And yeah, maybe it is. But, I mean, if they, at the end of the day, if they miss the playoffs and they're giving away a draft pick the next year, you know, that could be higher up. You know, I mean, it, the, the the sort of the value of it, the valuation of it is a challenging one because if they win this year, well, okay, then it's not the end of the world. You know, they'll say it's not the end of the world. You know, that kid wasn't going to make our roster anyway. But first round picks have a lot of value. You know, that's the thing. And and you know, you've said it yourself. You said, listen, you gotta you gotta give something up to make a deal, and that's true. I think it's just when you look at how all the other moves that have been made around the league, you know, the Canucks paid a hefty price, and it's not clear that that hefty price was necessary. So the game against Detroit. Early goal, and we know that Markstrom is away from the team for a while. Demko goes in. We'd looked at this kind of lax start to the season. I'm thinking, I'm not sure how much Demko is going to get to play anyway. Right. So Detroit gets the early goal, and I start to see the social media reaction. Like, okay, here we go again. The next slide starts now. But, you know, this is is what Demko's here for. This is what all the development's been there. Your sense of how he's going to handle being the number one guy for a little bit. You know, it was so interesting with him post-game. I I meant to mention this, and it's one of those where there's always so many things to touch on post-game. But. You know, when we asked him about the sort of mental challenge of getting in the net, you know, it's your first start of the year. You know the sort of scenario that's in front of you that you need to get a couple of good starts here. The team really needs that from you. And to have essentially the first shot of the game go in. You know, he, he actually paused and it wasn't like he was upset. He just needed to think about it because he was like, you know, you're right. It was a, it's not how you want to start your season at all. And, and sort of found the words and essentially said, listen, it was, it was, it was definitely as big a sort of a mental challenge as a goalie can face. I, I, I briefly found myself thinking back to Martin Brochu. Remember him? I mean, he was the, the disaster backup that, uh, the Canucks tried out. I think it was at 0203 behind Dan Cloutier and just, he couldn't stop a beach ball. And, uh, you know, Demko obviously comes with, you know, with I think a sort of better coaching under, you know, underpinning him. And, you know, he's, he's coming with more talent, highly, more highly rated. And, you know, we saw last year how well he can play. So, you know, I, I think he, he essentially admitted that the way he was able to sort of regather himself, get himself refocused, and then played the rest of the game 
he was actually quite proud of that. You know, that this is a guy that obviously plays a position that is mentally demanding and, uh, you know, both in the performance wise and, and, you know, from his own, his own sort of desire and, and focus. And then also understanding that there's expectations from his teammates, from fans, from coaches, from everybody. Uh, yeah, he was quite happy with how he handled that, that sequence. He didn't want to, he, you know, he, it was one of those ones. Every goalie wants to pitch a shutout, right? I mean, he, he was like, I should have made the save. Uh, but at the end of the day, he was like, you know what? I got past it. I didn't let it bother me. And I played, I shut out the rest of the game. That's good for him. I, 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 this is going to be a really interesting uh, road trip to see what happens there. Now, Patrick, your Canucks stuff is always so well read, but the story that got the numbers jumping was, and I don't always like to talk about other media because I don't like when people pick over our bones when when stuff happens here, but Sportsnet 650, Canuck rights holder, we all know that they've signed a mega TV deal with the NHL. There's been problems across the country with yep. how much they paid for it and staff and everything else. But they they let four guys go yesterday. But, you know, we don't really have time to talk about everyone. But Rick Dollywall, to yeah. me, is someone I've known for a long time. And I did a couple of years in sports radio. Do you want to tell the Bo Eliwanibi story? Uh, yeah, we're, we're, absolutely. We're at a Grizzlies game. And, you know, this is really the days pre-internet. And I knew the Lions that had a big signing. I was the only guy that knew. One of the guys on the team told me, and they were unveiling it the next day, and I was kind of gloating that I knew it. He's on the phone at a Grizzlies game nonstop for an hour and 15 minutes until he gets the story that he knows who it is. And so he, I always joked, he then got it out before we published because he got it. I was on, he was working for News 1130 at the time. No one listened to it at those times. So I told him, okay, I beat you in terms of getting this story. You got it out before me. But everyone read my story. No one listened to your <laughs> yeah. thing. So, but that is Rick in a nutshell. And it, we see that in this market. He is beloved by Canuck fans because he gets news. Yeah. And you know, as news, n- traditional newspapers and websites, our function is more to get news and not just stand in a scrum mm-hmm. and hold a microphone there. The electronic media, unfortunately, that tends to happen for them. They aren't the beat guys so much, but I was stunned to see that yesterday. You wrote a story on it and drew a huge reaction. Yeah. What was it like in the press box last it night? It was, you know, I mean, obviously it's, radio is a challenging business more than ever, as you know, as, as I wrote post game. And, uh, you know, Rick was a guy that, you know, really pushed to find out other, you know, he pushed to find out other things in a way that, it was very, like you just said, very old school. I mean, you know, that story has always stuck with me when you, from the moment you first told me about how you had the scoop and it was going to be in the paper the next morning. And Rick said, well, I'm going to figure it out and, you know, proudly figured it out and had I it would on. like to point out he was paid to be watching the, and reporting on the Grizzlies yeah. and was completely ignoring the game. He was paying attention to the yeah. CFL, right? He like, just didn't want to get beat. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, such a great statement about, about his work ethic and his desire. You know, it, it, it's funny because it was it was partly driven through sort of personal rivalry with you. You know, I got to be chappy, absolutely. Um, but you know, he he at the end of the day is a guy that you know built relationships. You know, I think we know with a lot, of, especially with player agents, and you know, was able to get a different take on sort of news going around the league. And you know, you know, would say this is what I'm hearing. This is the kind of thing that you know the other side essentially is talking about. And, you know, that there's value in that kind of reporting and there's value in, in the sort of, you know, when you step back and look at the sort of whole of, you know, reporting on a hockey team, for instance, you know, we all have our little, 
angles, no matter how much we may try to be sort of, I'm sort of standing back and just reporting the story. At the end of the day, there's choices in everything you do and everything you put in the story and how you organize it and what you choose to emphasize, you know, whether it's written or as you just pointed out, the radio, you know, the, the TV radio guys have such a, a different challenge in how they tell a story because they're not, they have to have the voices literally in the story. And that's why they end up inevitably asking so many questions in, uh, in media availabilities. Uh, and, and so, you know, while he was never a guy that was at the rank, you know, he was a guy that was away from the crowd. I mean, that, you know, that is such a powerful, uh, reporting tool for anyone who's sort of ever thought about or is interested in how journalism works. I mean, being able to be the person that's away from the crowd, who's looking for the other story, you know, the, I cited this in the summer when I wrote about the late Jason Botchford. I cited, you know, Jimmy Brelson's famous story about, talking to the guy who dug uh, JFK's grave, you know, and his story and his perspective on all of it. And, you know, so so Rick being able to be away in, in a way almost insulated from what went on, goes on at the rink get, did give him a bit of agency, I think. And it's going to be interesting to see where he's, you know, as he told me last night, I've been, he's been doing it for uh, for 28 years. And, you know, you know that he'll want to keep doing it because he loves it. I mean, he wouldn't keep doing it if he didn't love it. So it'll be interesting to see how things play out for us. Well, also, you know, and we'll, we'll leave it there. That's the end of, uh, of this episode. And, you know, we've got a lot of stuff to talk about in the next week with the Canucks on this road trip. But, yeah. you know, you know it yourself, Patrick. You know on the beat. It's relationship building, right? Yeah. So um, Rick's forged great relationships. I'm not going to be old man shakes, you know, fist at cloud and say bloggers in their parents' basement. But it, it's pretty easy to sit back in an office yeah. and see what everyone else reports and say, here's what I think about it. Yeah. What Rick does, what you do, you mentioned Botchford, is building relationships yeah. with scouts, agents, coaches, general managers, maintaining those relationships. Uh, so maybe when they move on, that was the best thing about working with Rick on the CFL beat. There were always guys with access to grind who right. got let go and recycled somewhere else who yeah. would give you the scoop. Yeah. So if you wanted to find out what was going on with the Lions, yeah. all you had to do was call someone in Saskatchewan yeah. and they'd let you know. 18 League, imagine that. That was fantastic. Anyway, we'll leave it there for this week. Thanks for listening. Again, you can subscribe to the White Tail Podcast through Apple uh, Podcasts, and we will back be back with all your Connect News next week.